Hi, welcome to Not All Lawyers Have Law Degrees and lots of other things that we found out about becoming a lawyer and the people that do. Hi, I'm Bridget. I'm a lawyer in the BBC's legal team. A lot of people, when they think about lawyers and the legal profession, perceive of lawyers in a really binary way, either as solicitors in suits working in the city or as criminal barristers advocating in court wearing wigs and gowns. But of course, in reality, there are so many different types of lawyers. We all look different, we sound different, and there are lots of different pathways into the legal profession, some of which I wasn't even aware of before I started out on this podcast journey. So to kick off our podcast and hopefully give you a fresh perspective of what being a lawyer can look like, I chat with Mossen Zaidi. Mossen's been both a city solicitor and a corporate crime barrister. He also happens to be someone who is incredibly honest about failure and challenge. He's candid and he's positive. Enjoy. Hi, Mossen. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. You work at Six Kings Bench Walk, which is a barrister's chambers in London that focuses on, or you focus primarily on corporate crime and investigations. Yeah. That sounds very glamorous to me. <laughs> is, is that fair to say? You know, it's funny because there is definitely an element of truth to that. So there are very dramatic moments. So for example, when you are waiting, particularly when you're defending somebody and you're waiting for the jury's verdict and when the when the four person stands up and they're about to deliver it, that that silence really is it, it's it, captivating and it re- it really is um you are holding your breath and you are waiting for that verdict and that's very cinematic actually but you know the mountains of documents and paperwork and books and and drafting that takes place beforehand not so cinematic yeah it sounds a little bit like any court drama you yeah. don't see the behind the scenes grunt no. work you just see yeah the courtroom drama in a in a in a schmick robe and yeah, in your wig exactly, exactly. <laughs> well i mean today i really want to talk about your story and your mm. career progression which is on paper an incredible sort of linear path of success but obviously there's so many aspects to your story you you know you've talked about growing up in an underprivileged part of London, being one of the first people from your school, I think this is right to be accepted to Oxford University, mm. grew up in a devout Shia Muslim family, and you talked about the challenges of, of coming out as gay to your family. So many things we could talk about. Uh, I'm going to start with a really big question, a career question that hopefully will give people a sense of how you came to be where you are now, living sure. in a courtroom drama, effectively, it sounds like. <laughs> oh, no, I don't think I said that, but fair enough. <laughs> That's what it sounds like. Let's go with that. <laughs> Your career path, I think, looks, as I said, like a really seamless linear line. What is the secret to your success? <laughs> um, well, I, th- I think it's interesting that, you know, you, you observe that it's a linear path of success because so often it looks that way from the outside uh, because on li- places like LinkedIn, we don't put our failures, right? We're, we, we're told to, to tell everybody about our successes and I'm guilty of mm-hmm. it too. Um, but I think it's really important for people to know that actually it's not as straightforward as that. So when I was in my first year of university d- reading law, I was almost kicked out and I didn't work hard enough is the honest answer. I had a lot going on pr- privately. Um, I was trying to come to terms with my sexuality and I was from a very religious family and so there was a lot of turmoil. But the thing is, I think I also hid behind that 
because it was easier to lean on those things. And it culminated in, in me getting a third in my mock exams for my first year. So it was, it was basically, a, it was almost a fail. Almost a fail, yeah. My tutor called me into his room and said, you've failed one exam and you got a third in the other. And these are mock exams, but your real exams are coming up in less than three weeks. I suggest you get your head down because it's looking likely that you will be kicked out. And I was petrified. Um, and I felt I very, imagine. yeah, I felt very alone as well because I hadn't told anybody that I was gay. I hadn't told anybody that I was struggling with my mental health. Um, and now I was facing the possibility that the one thing that my parents just uh, loved so much and were so proud of, um, I was going to take away from them. And for me, I was losing, I was going to get kicked out of Oxford. Um, and so I, I got my head down and I studied as hard as I possibly could. I actually didn't sleep the night before one of my exams. I pulled this all nighter, which was a really bad idea because I, I'm not the sort of person who can work at nighttime. Um, I, I convinced myself that drinking Red Bulls was a good idea and it wasn't, it doesn't help you concentrate. We've all been there. <laughs> and it was all because I was desperately clutching onto this idea that I wasn't going to fail. And it culminated in me, I had my notes in my pocket and I went into the exam hall and I remember thinking, okay, if the worst happens, at least I've got my notes here. And I'd never before been the sort of person who would even think about cheating, but I was in such a weird mindset and I couldn't quite believe the mindset I was in. Looking back at it now, I just think, what on earth was that? And at the beginning of the exam, the announcer said, if you have anything on your person that could be deemed cheating, give it to us now. Otherwise, if we find it on you, you will be excluded. Mm. And I remember the exam was about to start and I just put my hand up and I said, oh, I've got these notes. Because I just thought, you know what? It's not worth it. It's, it, no. the, the, it's not worth the stress, the humiliation, the indignity of any of this. And so I gave the notes away and I did my best at the exam. And somehow, basically, I was on a four-year course. So I was going to do Erasmus in Holland. Mm -hmm. But in order to stay on that course, I had to average 60, which is a 2-1. So it's the kind of second top mark. In my first year, I averaged 59.67. Oh. But they round up. Okay. <laughs> so, so I got to. So, There's so I much suspense in the story. I know. Oh. So I got to. I got to go on the the four year course. I got to go to Holland, where I really did come out of my shell and came out of the closet and, and oh, everything. Fantastic. But for me, like looking back, that was a failure because I didn't give my all. I learned a lot from it. I, you know, I, I learned about what it means to be resilient. I learned about trying not to cut corners, and I learned about the personal impact it can have on you when you aren't taking your health seriously enough. We are so programmed to only tell people about our successes. Mm. And I just think it's so bad for all of us. I think sometimes when I've messed things up, that's when I've learned the most. So what attributes do you think you have or was it luck or determination that got you over some of those setbacks, like potentially being asked to leave Oxford? Well, I, I worked hard. Mm. I think because I came from a place where we had very little, I felt grateful, really grateful to be, you know, when I was at university, to be at this really amazing 
place because that wasn't the world that I grew up in. The world I grew up in was very closed and very small. Even though I, I grew up in London, one of the richest cities on the planet, I grew up in public housing and there were times when we barely had money for food. And I think going to a place like Oxford that violently contrasted with where I had come from, it was very confronting, but but I also just, I felt like a kid in a candy store. Like, you know, to, to borrow that expression from America, because you really just suddenly think, oh my God, I can, I can do whatever I like. I can, I can try and make something of myself. So I think it was a combination of working hard and just being really excited and enthusiastic about what I could get from the world. I guess it's important to say that actually loads of people grow up with very little and work really hard and don't get the opportunities that I got. So it would be wrong to just rely on hard work because hard work, unfortunately, particularly in, in, our, in our British class entrenched society, is not always enough. So I guess luck has a part to play. Um, I think I was really lucky because I met some really wonderful people. Um, I don't think I would be where I am today without the support and assistance and guidance from some what like wonderfully generous people along the way. Because it's it, it's interesting questions around mentors, informal and formal. I think a lot of people like myself who don't have, let's say, parents who are lawyers. Mm. It sounds like your sort of role models and 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 mentors were more informal. Did you have particular ways of seeking people out, or did you rely on those more informal relationships? I guess it's a combination of the two. Mm. I don't think I consciously looked for mentors to begin with, although I think I was less scared of asking for help and, and asking for advice. Um, and that then lent itself to building relationships where people felt comfortable imparting that advice on an ongoing basis. What, what is it about you that makes you confident to do that? I think a lot of people would find that quite I mean, it's difficult to ask for help, isn't it? No matter what the help is that you're asking for. What is it about you? Do you have an innate confidence or? I think it's the opposite. I mean, okay. actually, I, I am confident. There's no, yeah. you know, I wouldn't want to suggest I wasn't. But I think yeah. that the, the, the questions come from the opposite place. I think I'm I'm confident enough to be vulnerable. So even in a professional context, I'm I can say, I don't know this. I don't understand this. I think that's 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 actually what makes it easy to ask questions because mm. there are things that I know I can do and that I am good at, but there are things that I know that, you know, I have no idea about. And so I see that there is wisdom and experience that other people have um, and that I can learn from it. And, I, and so I, I, I think actually that's the most... You know, if I know we're going to talk about tips and stuff from, for, for, for young lawyers, but I think one of the most important things is there is no such thing as a stupid question. There might be a stupid time and place to ask it, but there is no such thing as a stupid question. No, I, I love that. I love the confidence and vulnerability idea. And I think you're right. I would always say to myself when I started jobs, particularly my first graduate job, I worked in the Law Reform Commission in Australia. It was my first graduate job. And I said to myself for the first maybe three months, this is your time to ask silly questions because Absolutely. there will come a time where... You've been here too long. You can't ask, you know, even even little things. You can't ask how to print a document anymore. Yeah. You have to, this is this is the period you can't ask what the acronym is or who's the head of a, a department of government that you need to advise. This is the time. And I Absolutely. made sure I took notes so I remember the answers. So you worked at Linklater's, which is a, a big law firm, uh, primarily specializing in, in corporate law in, in London. What motivated you to work for a big city law firm? 
You know, sorry, before we go on to that, I should probably um, explain about the reason I applied for law. Mm, please. I applied because I thought that's what I had to do. Um, nobody told me that you don't have to do a law degree in order to become a lawyer. Mm. And if I'd known that, I wouldn't have done a law degree. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. And as someone, someone not who didn't study in this country, what were those, what are those other pathways? Do you mind explaining what they are? No, not at all. So essentially, if you've not done a law degree, then there's one year um, of professional training that you do called a conversion course. And then you do the legal practice course, which is what every person, whether you've done a law degree or mm. not, has to do before they become a solicitor. Mm -hmm. Basically, you either do the LPC or the, the bar equivalent okay. so you, to become a barrister or a solicitor. And if you haven't done a law degree, then, then you do an extra year before that, which is called the conversion course. And I think if I'd known that that was an option, I would have done it. But I think one of the traps that particularly kids from poor backgrounds fall into is they apply for law and medicine because they think, well, well, that's the only thing there is to do. Or those are the most impressive things or those, I want to be a lawyer, I want to be a doctor. But it's important to know that law and medicine are statistically the most difficult courses to get onto. Mm. And so what you're doing is you're setting yourself up for the hardest challenge. And, you know, if, that, if that's what you want, I think particularly when you, if you want to be a doctor, then obviously you have to study medicine. But if you want to be a lawyer, there's so many ways in like, you can be a really well-rounded lawyer with a background in something else. So for example, mm. if you want to be an intellectual property lawyer, then having a background in science can be invaluable. Mm. Um, if you want to be a construction lawyer, a, a particularly a construction disputes lawyer, then having a background in engineering can be really helpful. Um, but, it, but it extends beyond that. So for example, if you read English, you have an understanding of language and the power of language and the power of storytelling. So if you want to become a jury advocate, or even um, a commercial barrister, you, you understand how words can convey messages and the power of that. So I think that there are lots of ways in which doing a, a non-law degree can inform your career if you decide to be a lawyer. No, I think that makes sense. But having made having made that that decision, having studied law, you have obviously formed a view you wanted to practice. Yeah. And you started out as a solicitor at a big city law firm. Yeah. So what led you there? Why the city? I'm going to be completely honest. I was very young and I had very little idea of the world. And when I was at university, Magic Circle law firms were taking me out for dinners and um, they were offering to pay for my LPC and mm -hmm. give me money on top. Which and I didn't have the money to pay for the LPC, the kind of fifteen twenty grand that it you, you need, um, and also the salary, the starting salary was more than my parents earned combined. So I don't know that I thought about it very carefully, actually. Mm -hmm. Although with hindsight, I still think it was the right decision because I think that, that there is an immense amount that you can learn from a professional environment like that. I mean, Linklater's it's kind of part of the foundations of me. Um, one of the things that Linklater's really drills into you is the importance of attention to detail um, and of being not too legal, actually. So being commercial and thinking commercially about your clients and about the decisions that you're making and the advice that you're giving. And those things are never going to leave me. Can I pick up on something quickly? I'm, I'm conscious not everybody will know what a magic circle law firm oh, yeah. is. I mean, it sounds like something out of Lord of the Rings. Can you explain yeah. <laughs> what a magic circle law firm is? So magic circle law firm, it's it's a predominantly a Europe, European term for the top five um, law firms in, I guess, in Europe slash the world. Um, so 
They are Linklater's, Clifford Chance, Alan and Overy, Slaughter and May, and, oh God, I've gone completely blank. Freshfields, Freshfields. But yeah, and, and essentially they are, they're the, they're the big English firms that now have a, a global reach. So from Linklater's, you work at the Supreme Court as I a did. judicial assistant. Yeah. We'll come on, I think, a little bit to that a little bit more later. So it's super interesting. But if we can move on to the transition from being a solicitor to the bar where you are now. I mean, it's quite a distinct move, obviously, and one mm. a lot of people I know in this country go straight to the bar rather than practice as a solicitor first. Had you thought about that transition? And if so, why yeah. why do it in that order? Uh, because I couldn't afford to be a barrister straight out the gate. Because mm-hmm. being a barrister, you're self-employed mm-hmm. and no no chambers, generally speaking, I think, pays for the the bar training course yet. So you have to pay for that yourself. Now, there are scholarships okay. available, but ultimately you're not, there's no guarantee. They're limited, yeah. Um, but then that's just the fees, right? Because then you're based in London and fortunately my parents live in a suburb of London, but I'd still have to work so that I could uh, live. Um, but then on top of all of that, you're starting off in a career where you're self-employed. And being self-employed is financially a risk. What did that feel like to you when you when you joined the bar? It was petrifying. That's honest. It was. It was. And to be completely honest, sometimes it still is. I think that you don't know when money's coming in and you don't know how much is coming in. And you don't know how much of it is actually yours because you have to put money aside for tax. You have to money aside for VAT. You have to put money aside for chambers rent and for business expenses that you incur. And and actually, I think that does take a psychological toll. I I think that there are advantages to being self-employed as well, and we shouldn't ignore those. Mm. But um, at the beginning, what I had done was I'd actually saved. So in my last year at Linklaters, I knew I was going to the bar and I'd saved aggressively so that I in my so that when I started in my first year I had a cushion um and that was the only way I could justify the move and I you know I, I do think it comes from the background I that I, I I have um I couldn't stare down the barrel of no guarantee of income and say oh okay I'm just going to go down that road it just was it was too scary um it was too uncertain it was too risky so the the cushion really helped me in the in the first year and yeah, I mean, I, I wish I could say that that fear goes away, but I'm not sure it does. But, but you know, as I say, there are so many advantages to being self-employed too. You you have so much freedom. You get to work on the things that you really enjoy and care about. And when it's a nice sunny Friday afternoon, like this one's going probably going to be, you can just say, oh, you know what? I'm going to take the day off and go to the park. So there is some great things too. I mean, that sounds delightful. So a question we've had in from a student at the University of Law is, I'm struggling to decide whether I would like to be a solicitor or a barrister. Is being a solicitor advocate a happy middle ground? My my own view is that if you want to be an advocate, then being a barrister is probably a, a probably the best way to go. But there is plenty of opportunities for advocacy as a solicitor, as a solicitor advocate, actually. It, I guess it depends on what you want to do. If you want to work in a commercial setting, then if you, if you, if you want to be a commercial, barrister, commercial advocate at the high court, you have to be a barrister. But arbitration, which is basically private litigation, where companies agree that they're going to dispute something privately without a court involved. So they do have judges, but they're all appointed as arbitrators. 
you can go and be a solicitor in a solicitor's firm and be an, and be an advocate in that setting. And you don't need to have qualifications as a barrister to do it. So there are lots of different ways to to be an advocate. Um, and I guess it's important to decide which which one suits your career path. But I think that really that depends on what sort of lawyer you want to be. Something that I have kind of ruminated on is the way in which when you enter the legal profession as a, as a young sort of student or aspiring lawyer, the physical environments you're in are quite bizarre and can be incredibly intimidating. So for me, grew up in Sydney, I was born and bred in Sydney, which is a, a harbour city, really beautiful, phys- you know, the physicality of Sydney, the geographic setting is, you know, I'm biased, but honestly quite yeah. stunning. Sounds nice. Yeah. Um, and when I started applying for jobs in you know, law firm, in, in government, where I ended up working in my graduate position, a lot of those organisations are at the top floor of skyscrapers looking out onto Sydney Harbour. And I go up for interviews to level 40, level 60 of these buildings and be awed by these like panoramic views of Sydney Harbour that I'd never seen before. And I guess that's, that's Sydney's version of the Supreme Court or your college at Oxford. You know, you're, you know, you've been in these, I guess, quite incredibly privileged and frankly quite, you know, strange sort of Harry Potter, I guess, environments. To what extent do you think you've been able to be your authentic self in those environments? It really, you know, the answer is um, it's a complicated one because in some ways one of the reasons I was able to be more myself was because I was so ignorant to the way that people were supposed to carry themselves. So I only knew one way to be, which was to be the way that I am with everybody. The way I talk to you now is the way that I talk to my colleagues or to my partner and I'm just, I'm hesitating because I'm, I'm wondering whether maybe it's an op- a good time to share a story with you um, about my time at Supreme Court. Please. One of the judges I worked for was a, a, a judge called Lord Wilson. And when I first started working for him, uh, he didn't use emails. So he would have his secretary print out his emails. He would write a response and she would, she would send it. And I remember saying to him, you know, you're a judge at the Supreme Court. Come on, like you've got to get with the times. <laughs> and so... He just said like, oh, I just find this technology very clunky. And I had recently bought an iPad. So I lent him my iPad and I said, look, I've just bought this. It's really easy to use. You know, just try it for a couple of days and see how you get on or have it for a week or so. I gave it to him on a Friday and on the Monday he says, oh, I bought myself uh, an iPad. So here's yours back. And I was like, wow, Mm, that was was quick. quick. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, so we start working together. And one of the things that he asks me to do is work on this speech on the institution of marriage that he was giving in Belfast. And I was really worried about that because I thought that it was going to be, well, like, my concern was he was going to say something homophobic and then I'd be kind of torn. Like, do I do I say, actually, I can't mm. work on this or I really don't want to work on this. Anyway, what he it turned out to be that the speech was on the flexibility of the concept of marriage and how people around the world throughout history have molded the concept to suit themselves. So his essential point was, look, we can do what we want with this concept. And I think that two men or two women should be allowed to marry each other if they want to. You must have been very relieved. I was really relieved. But at at the time in Belfast, same-sex marriage was not legal. So it was quite a bold statement for him to be making. So I help him with the speech, learnt loads. It was an incredible opportunity because he is genuinely like a wordsmith. He's so good with words. And I thought I'm going to take the opportunity to tell him about myself. So I said, Lord Wilson, it was a professional privilege to be able to work on this, but also a personal one 
because I'm gay. And he paused and then said, Mossin, I hope you don't mind my saying, but I already knew. Yeah. And I kind of sat up straight and thought, oh, what was it? You know, is it is it something in the way I was behaving? <laughs> Not there's anything wrong with that. But I was just a bit like, oh, I wonder, like, could he just tell? And he said, no, I, I couldn't tell. Um, do you remember when you lent me your iPad? Oh, no. And I said, yeah. And he said, well, um, over the weekend, I kept seeing these messages from a young man named Alejandro. And they were very colourful messages. <laughs> And I'll never forget that he used colourful. the word colourful because it's, it's such a polite English way. It's a great English euphemism, way. yeah. <laughs> oh my God, yeah. Like, oh, talk about a euphemism. And like, to, if it's possible for a brown person to go red, like I went, <laughs> like I was so, like I was like uh, mortified yeah. and I actually excused myself and I left and I went to this like toilet cubicle and just sat there because I was too scared to go back to my desk because I didn't want to talk to my colleagues. I was really embarrassed. Oh my goodness. But then eventually I went back inside and... I was about to apologise and tell him how mortified I was. And he just sat me down and he had these lovely sofas right onto Parliament Square. So you could see onto Parliament mm. Square. And we sat on his sofas and he said, look, I don't care. I, you know, I, I, I really value your input. I want you to be able to just be who you are. I, I respect the input that you've given me professionally, but also personally, I'm really enjoying working together. And I want you to feel like you can be yourself. And I remember just being bowled over by that conversation. And, and it's really stuck with me because I thought to myself, okay, if I can work for one of the 12 most important lawyers in the country and have him say, I've seen your naughty messages and I still respect you as an individual, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, then why can't I be myself in chambers or in a law firm or in court? Because if he can cope with it, then everybody else should be able to as well. And it's a lesson that he taught me. I mean, he sounds like he was, you know, a great a great man and a great person to work for. He's wonderful. For people who maybe haven't had quite the luck of working for such mm. inclusive, reasonable, chilled employers and perhaps feel a bit fish out of water if they don't see themselves in their peers, in their colleagues, in whatever legal environment they work in. What what kind of advice do you have for, as you say, you know, being yourself and 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 trusting that that is the right the right path to take? Well, I think it's important to say straight at the outset that it's easy for me to say, oh, be yourself wherever you are, um, because there are lots of places in the UK, but also around the world where that's just not possible. Mm. And fundamentally, people need to to put to, to bring money in so that they can live. And that has to be a priority. And I'm not going to pretend for a minute that it isn't. But beyond beyond that, I think that if you're in a work environment, in a professional work environment, there should be space for you to be yourself. And I'd say if you're facing resistance to that, then ultimately there are plenty of other places that will, I'm sure, would love to have you. Mm. I, I I did an interview with a law firm that will remain nameless. And during the interview, it was around the time when there were a lot of terrorist attacks in London. And the government was trying to implement a rule that was a 90-day detention without charge. Mm. So they were trying to basically hold people bef- without charging them in a reasonable amount of time. And the interviewer said said to me, um, are you familiar with that legislation that the government's trying to pass? And I was like, yes. And this is a commercial law firm. Yes, I am. And he said, well, how do you think that that um, legislation will impact on people like me versus people that look like you. Wow, he said that. He did. And um and he really I was about to swear then I won't swear. <laughs> but he he really he really he really angered me. Um because I just thought how dare you? 
Like now I understand it's a legitimate question to ask in certain situations, but there is a deep power imbalance mm. here. You are a white male partner of a law firm that I am trying to work mm. at. And you are asking me about something that is directly because of my skin color. But I, I, I emailed my law tutor about it afterwards. And I said, look, this happened. And I haven't found out yet whether I've got the job or not, but I just wanted to tell somebody that this happened. And he replied and he said, I'm sure that you'll get offered a job, but even if you do, it doesn't sound like the sort of place that you'll want to work. And I thought that that was invaluable advice because ultimately I was offered a job and I said no. Mm. Um, and it was because of that interview, because had it not been for that interview, it, that firm would have been one of my top choices. It's disappointing for the firm. <laughs> Um, on many levels. I wanted to pick up on something. I mean, you, you talked about, you know, assisting at the Supreme Court, assisting with speech writing. I mean, language mm. is something you've spoken about and something I think all lawyers will admit is incredibly important in the work that we do and quite, can be quite a, uh, I think, un unfortunately, can be a bit of a tool for exclusion. You've spoken about the use of Latin and in, in the law and that being obviously incredibly foreign to you when you started studying law. For me, when I moved to, to England, I found the law terms, the names for the law terms really odd. So I've actually, yeah. I've written them down. So I remember them. I mean, it's like Henry of, and Trinity, right? And, and Easter, I think is the fourth. Is that right? Oh, is Easter a separate term? Oh, I could be wrong. I'm, I'm going to obviously defer to you. Well, I mean, a, I've been a lawyer here for like nearly 12 years and I, and I don't know. So that's terrible. Okay. But yeah, they sound like something out of a Dickens novel to yeah. me. And that's just one of lots of bizarre examples of the law using language in a really odd way that can be, I think, quite exclusive. Yeah. I mean, to what extent do you think language in the law can exclude people? Yeah, I mean, no, I mean, the Latin I do have a problem with uh, because because I don't think that we should be using language that not everybody can understand. Basically, if someone is reading a judgment, they should at least have the opportunity to understand everything that's in that judgment. But I think the other thing about it, right, is it's not just about like accessibility, it's about just understanding. So for yourself and for the for the reader, what you want to do is you want to make your language as simple as possible because simplicity can lead to effective advocacy. If you are clear and simple, then the concepts will be clear and simple. If the language you use is uh, is understandable, then the concepts are more likely to be understandable. I think some people think that by using long words and fluffy language, that they, they look more intelligent. And actually, what's going to make you look intelligent is an intelligent argument on the page, clearly um, and simply explained. The other thing about language, though, and this comes into the point about access to the profession, is I don't remember the exact statistic, but working class kids, by the time they're five, and, I've, and I'm one of these, their range of vocabulary is something like 20, 30, maybe even 40% less than that of kids from middle class and upper class backgrounds. And that follows throughout life. And I, I had that problem. So um, one of the other judges that I worked for was a guy called Lord Kerr, who's unfortunately passed away recently. And he was absolutely wonderful. His range of vocabulary was unbelievable. It, it was like he'd swallowed a thesaurus and it was just stuck in his stomach. And I really, I, I, I was scared when I was going to see him because he would use really long words. And he sensed this reluctance in me. And he said to me once, he said, why are you a bit reluctant when you, when you speak to me? And I said, can I, can I be honest with you, Lord Kerr? And he said, yeah. 
because you use a lot of long words and I don't understand them. And he said, okay, I'll make you a deal. If I use a word that you don't understand, as long as we're not in the middle of a court hearing, tell me and I will explain that word and then we will keep talking. And so that's what we agreed. And that agreement was transformative, not just with for my relationship with him, but for my relationship in the professional world with other people. So when when there was a long word that was used in a meeting, I would put my hand up and say, I'm sorry, I actually don't know that word. I, you know, it's really embarrassing, but I don't know it. Because I had the confidence that once I was that the word was explained to me, I could get my head around the actual concept. And the number of times that I've had messages from people saying, oh my God, I've never heard of that word either. And you think, we're all just sitting in this room pretending. In silence. Yeah. And, yeah. and who does that help? Um, now, obviously, you don't want to be interrupting every five minutes to be like, what does that mean? What does that mean? What does that mean? Sometimes I will write them down. Sometimes I'll Google them. But like, I do think that language, particularly in the law, is a really powerful tool, but it's also used um, to exclude. And I, and I, and I think that we are, if we're really serious about opening up the profession to a wider group of people, then we need to acknowledge the role that language can play. Mm. To touch on something that you raised at the start of our conversation about the, conf- the confidence you have in your own vulnerabilities, and that mm-hmm. was an example where you, you know, you raised your hand and you asked someone who was in, inc- in an incredible position of authority and power to explain some of their some of their language where you didn't understand. I mean, I still have moments like that at work. We just had a moment like that where we didn't know something. For people who are less confident, particularly when they're starting out, what advice would you give them for how to deal with those moments? Yeah. So the best piece of advice that I was given in relation to this was by, see, like all the advice that I'm giving is advice people have given me, right? There's I'm not, there's nothing new here, unfortunately. Otherwise I'd probably be a millionaire with a massive <laughs> multi-million book sales or something. But um, it was from a friend of mine from university who's now a partner at Linklaters. His name's Rob Elliott. And he said to me, so he started as a trainee at Linklaters about six months before me. And I and I went into his office on my first day and I said, look, is there anything that I should know? Like, is there anything you can tell me? And he said, look, if I'm going to give you one piece of advice, it's this. Keep a pen and paper with you at all times. Take it to the <laughs> toilet with you. Take it to lunch with you. Hold it when you're going to pick up paper from the printer because somebody will stop you and they'll ask you something. And if you've written it all down, then you can ask somebody else what it all means later. And honestly, that has really, that has helped me so much. Like mm. I just write stuff down. And when I don't feel comfortable asking the person um, a question uh, or I worry that they're going to think I, I'm stupid, I go and ask somebody who I, who can, who can, who I trust. Um, and that has I think probably helped me more than most other things. I think the other thing I would say is find safety. So find safety in people. So, Mm. you know, there are going to be moments when you're really scared or you make a mistake or you don't understand something. In every group dynamic, there are lovely people who are there who are either going through the same thing or have recently gone through the same thing and they'll help you through it. So... Um, it's really important to find those people. I'm going to end on a, a probably a bit of a classic question. What would you say to your younger self? What was the one piece of advice you would give your younger self when you were thinking about starting out a career in the law? Okay, so there's this song. It's actually by um, Baz Luhrmann, who's, I think he's Australian. He is he's Australian. Australian. Yeah, there we go. So he didn't write the song, but he produced the song and it's called Wear Sunscreen. And 
It's I love that absolutely. song. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, there's a line in that song that I absolutely love. And I think it, and even, and uh, it follows me. And the line is, the most interesting people I know didn't know at 22 what they wanted to do with their lives. Some of the most interesting 40-year-olds I know still don't. So the piece of advice I would give is keep challenging yourself and keep wondering whether you want to do something else because, you know, life's short and you only get one chance. You might end up on a podcast. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) If I could offer you only one tip for the future, sunscreen would be it. The long-term benefits of sunscreen have been proved by scientists, whereas the rest of my advice has no basis more reliable than my own meandering experience. I will dispense this advice now. Enjoy the power and beauty. That was Mossen Zaidi, barrister and author of A Dutiful Boy, a memoir of secrets, lies and family love. I'm joined now by my colleague and apprentice at BBC Legal, Georgie. Hey, Georgie. Hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good, thanks. What did you think of Mossen? Oh, what a joy to listen to. Oh, my gosh. I literally wrote it down in not like my work notebook, but my journal, which, I mean, embarrassing to oh. announce to the airwaves, but uh, here we That's are. That's quite an honour. That uh, being confident enough to be vulnerable, I think, is like such a lovely idea. And like, I don't know, I also identify as queer and I grew up in like a kind of fairly religious household and like Mm. you know I'm just rooting for anybody who has like a similar experience and just like really wonderful to see somebody who's like just so impressive and so brilliant but also talk about you know the times in their life that have been really hard and where they feel like they've failed. Mm. No, I agree. It's really nice to hear someone be so candid. And what about his kind of pathway? Because it seems really linear to me and like he knew exactly what he was doing. He had this kind of formulaic pathway out in front of him, which is kind of a dream, I think, to a lot of a lot of aspiring lawyers. But but again, he was really honest about, well, no, it was hard work and that there were points where he thought, you know, he would get kicked out of university. Uh, there were points where he didn't feel maybe accepted. I don't know. Do you kind of relate to that? So I've got a piece of coursework due tomorrow, which is very much not Ooh, finished at the moment. Cheeky, and, talking to me. Uh, <laughs> um, and yeah, so hearing somebody who is wildly successful also having struggled sometimes with the academics, very comforting, very, yeah. very comforting. Um, yeah. But no, I totally agree that like from the outside seems super planned and almost like, yeah, like the perfect execution of like, I don't know, like the master plan or whatever. And he was super candid about the fact that like absolutely wasn't that. And I found what mm. he said about like being self-employed and like not becoming a barrister because too expensive and like not certainty of income really interesting because I think I would make exactly the same call to be honest and I think the idea Mm. of like being a barrister seems so glamorous but he was talking about kind of the fact that actually you need to like put money aside for tax and VAT and there's actually quite a lot of like some there's like a degree of worry involved in it oh absolutely and 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 therefore a degree of planning and you have to be really honest about financial planning going into the bar if you maybe don't have family resources or you don't have a scholarship or whatnot well I'm very glad that uh that you enjoyed you enjoyed our, our first conversation on the podcast so brilliant 
If you want to hear more about being a barrister, please keep listening. In upcoming episodes, we're going to be speaking to Hashi Muhammad, Carly Alaikurgu, and Carly Green, who is starting her bar career with the Crown Prosecution Service. We'll also be hearing from a representative from the Inner Temple about qualifying as a barrister and the funding options available. If you want to hear from some brilliant solicitors as well, learn about apprenticeships or understand the SQE, that and a whole lot more is all coming up as well. In our next episode, you're going to meet our colleague Ella, who's been chatting to Yama Akiji, a solicitor at law firm Bindman's. She explains how she went from working in McDonald's to representing claimants in complex medical negligence cases. It's a really great listen. You can find more episodes on Apple, Spotify, Acast, and everywhere you find great podcasts. Make sure to like, review, and subscribe so you don't miss out on all our new episodes. You can find us on Instagram. Just search Not All Lawyers Pod and use the hashtag Not All Lawyers. Please do get in touch. We'd absolutely love to hear from you. This has been Not All Lawyers Have Law Degrees from the BBC's legal team. <laughs>